begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer attributed to St. Hilary of Poitiers, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I look at your heavens according to my own lights, Lord, with these weak eyes of mine, I am certain that they are your heavens without any qualification whatever. I note that the stars circle about them and reappear year after year, each with a different function and service to fulfill. And though I do not understand them, I come to the realization that you, O God, are in them. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, a summer special of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim and our guests, we are going to be reflecting on the faith in light of themes that we think about, especially during these summer months. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Dr. Carrie Gress, and uh, she's got in her Theology of Home series out now. It's book three, At the Sea. Carrie Gress, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for putting this out. If nobody has seen these Theology of Home books, if you could give them, give our listeners a sense of them. These are the kind of books that women just love to thumb through. I think, um, you know, it's... Let me, let me little... pause you right there, because <laughs> I love my copy, too. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Yes, obviously, men appreciate them as well. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the big idea behind Theology of Home was just to really recognize that there's a lot more in the culture than just words, and visuals are incredibly important. And I think as Catholics, we haven't really done a good job of capitalizing on that. And that, you know, it's part of our patrimony. We have no greater benefactor of the arts than the Catholic Church. And so um, the idea was really to, to start using incredibly beautiful visuals to help tell the story of our faith and our lives and our home and what it means to be women and families and, you know, all of those things using, you know, things that the left has used against us for, for decades, actually. So anyway, that was really the idea behind it, and um, it certainly developed into something it's turned into something certainly much larger than we ever imagined. Uh, I want to talk about this theme of at the sea, because you really mm-hmm. do have a lot to work with in the life of the church. I mean, even if you just listen at Mass, uh, there's a lot of water imagery just in the language that yeah. we use at Mass. No, and that was really the, the challenge of the book, was how do we you know, harness that in a way that really felt great for our audience and people wanted to read and um, really get some richness out of it, because... There's so many different directions that we could go, and, and again, just from Scripture alone. Um, but there's also a lot of really masculine stuff about the sea, which was really interesting to look at, um, you know, Moby Dick and the Master and Commander series and, you know, all of those kinds of very masculine um, adventure stories. That, But that wasn't really who our audience was. So um, anyway, we, we really happened upon all kinds of things, you know, just looking at 
the she of the sea. You know, there's a lot of of um, romance languages that refer to the sea as the feminine and wanted to dig into that and just help us understand our lives as, as women um, through this sea, through this really rich metaphor that we have on offer all the time and just the importance of water in our lives and whatnot. So anyway, it was um, once we sort of figured out that the angle to take on it, then it sort of wrote itself. But um, yeah, there, there's just so much there that it was just incredibly fun to, to dive into. No pun well, not only is the sea a she, uh, but the boats are often a she, right? Yep. And the church mm-hmm. is often referred to a boat, and the church is a mm-hmm. she, yep. <laughs> right? And, and the um, name guess of what? The church is right. also uh, named for navy. Yep. All right. Of that. Exactly. And you've got mm-hmm. Mary, star of the sea, and that devotion. Mm-hmm. You also have the dolphin as an early Christian symbol, guiding sailors to the true port. I mean, there's just a lot to go on there. I wonder if there were any neat yeah. ones that you didn't know about before you started writing. Actually, there, the, one of the things I loved the most, actually, in writing this book was um, reaching out to this friend of mine that I used, I lived with in Poland for uh, several months. And she was from a family that was, her whole family had been seamen at different points. And even she had, had worked on a ship until she had children. And it was just such a totally different perspective, because I think in so many respects as Americans, we think of the ocean as a place of recreation. And for her, it was something much more meaningful. It was their livelihood. It was escape from communism. It was, you know, all these kinds of things um, rolled into one. So anyway, that that was probably, for me, the most profound piece to, to put in the book was, you know, here's this woman that sees the ocean in a much different way than, um, you know, those of us who are just out looking for shells um, kind of experience. So yeah, there was a lot, um, a lot to pull from there. Plus, you got cool pictures. So, and who doesn't like We have like really cool pictures? great pictures. <laughs> That's right. We had a great time taking those pictures out in California. Well, Theology of Home 3 at the Sea, uh, Dr. Carrie Gress put it together along with Noel Maring, and it looks awesome. And it's awesome. actually, you know what? If nothing else, buy a copy and leave it at whatever beach house you're at. Yeah, that's uh, a great idea. There's that's your uh, there's idea. your stealth evangelization. People might pick it up thinking <laughs> that it's Southern Living Beach Edition, and uh, then they get hooked and become Catholic. I don't know. That's one idea. You never know. We've heard stranger stories, so I think it's a great idea, Matt. Well, uh, Dr. Carrie Gress, we've got your book linked at sunrisemorningshow.com, Theology of Home 3 at the Sea. Thanks for putting this out. I hope you put out more. We're working on them, so thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show Summer Special. We'll be back right after this. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com franchise opportunities available. Support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption. Sound of Freedom. Starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. Looking for a taste of summer to start your day? 
Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee, where you can find a number of special summer blends like banana rum and coconut margarita. And you can earn a commission for the Sunrise Morning Show when you go to sonrisemorningshow.com first and click our link to the Mystic Monk site. While at our site, be sure to check out our online store and pick up a Sunrise Morning Show travel mug to take on your summer road trip. Get your mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Wherever you are in the world, you can access the EWTN Global Catholic Network. It's everywhere. You can get EWTN's great Catholic programming on your car radio, at home on your TV, computer, or smart speaker. With EWTN's app, you can take EWTN everywhere on your phone or mobile device. If you want your news in print, turn to EWTN's paper of record, the National Catholic Register. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by John Mark Grodi. He's executive director of the Coming Home Network, also host of the Journey Home program on EWTN. John Mark, how are you? Very good, Matt. Good uh, good to be with you. Yeah, we work together at the Coming Home Network, and uh, C.S. Lewis comes up in our conversations all the time, but there's a particular (laughs) essay of his that I think is uniquely applicable to the summer months. Uh, A lot of people may not realize that Lewis wrote about bicycles. A lot of people getting on their bikes this time of year. If you could, tell us a little bit about what Lewis had to say about bicycles and what sparked this essay of his. Yeah, it's a a favorite essay of mine. It's called Talking About Bicycles. It shows up in the collection of Lewis's essays, Present Concerns. And it's an interesting essay. Like many of his works, he poses this topic in the form of a dialogue between himself and an unknown interlocutor. He's talking in the essay about the experience of this phenomenon of bicycles and how the, the friend describes himself as having experienced four ages of life, four, four stages of life that he's reflecting on. And they'll go on to define these stages as kind of the four state, four ages of enchantment. And he describes with bicycles that there's the age of unenchantment that you start with. And that's when you're, you're a child and you've never experienced a bicycle before. You're not enchanted by it, something special. It's just another object in the world of objects. Then you learn to ride a bike for the first time. It finally clicks and you have this experience, this enchantment and feeling of, of flying through the air. It's almost like swimming as, as Lewis describes it. And, and you get this glimpse, this feeling like you've arrived, like you're, you're, you're seeing, you know, what life is about because you're having this brilliant experience. And then he describes the age of disenchantment. And that is where the, again, the interlocutor of this dialogue is you know slogging back and forth from school on his bike and the enchantment of riding a bike has worn off now it's just it's gone from poetry to prose as he says and now it's just boring and he, he sort of looks back with a little bit of cynicism and at his original experience but finally he describes the re-enchantment that he has experienced with the bicycle after he's gotten past this this kind of low period of kind of resenting having to ride his bike He's able to recapture and appreciate a little bit of what he originally experienced when he was enchanted with it. A lot of people may not realize this, but you just also described the experience of the vast majority of the people we work with at the Coming Home Network who discovered the Catholic faith and then they get into it. (laughs) Exactly. And and this is kind of how it goes for them. 
Yeah, and that that's really the point of the essay is that Lewis is talking about these four ages of enchantment that really apply to so many things in life. Relationships, he and his friend talk about war, he and his friend talk about a number of different topics there. And we could apply it again, yeah, to coming to the church, right? There's the unenchantment stage. You've never, you've never experienced the church, not even interested. And then you become enchanted and maybe you become Catholic and then you come in and you, you know, the honeymoon is over and you, and you see all the warts and you realize that you yourself are one of the warts in the church. But eventually, you know, you push through and you begin to appreciate it in a deeper way. Part of the reason he explores this in his essay is because it's sort of describing a maturation process. But another thing I like about the essay is that it kind of gives us uh, an insight into, I think, the Christian journey uh, and the virtue of hope in the sense of our initial experiences of the faith or of our, our marriage or, again, many things in life give us this initial human burst of hope, you know, this, this glimpse of heaven. And that's a good thing. But it inevitably has to go through this winnowing process where the realities of life kind of crash and burn it for us so that Christ can restore to us a, a theological virtue of hope. In other words, a hope that goes beyond this world, for things beyond this world. And it's part of this process that Lewis describes that, that the Lord brings a more mature Christian hope to bear in our hearts. Well, this is not what I expected to ask you about this essay, because I had a whole other list of questions. But it strikes me as you're, <laughs> as you're speaking that when it comes to the resources that we're seeking out uh, for spiritual growth, if we want to, to really get our bearings and our anchors, we need to be reading re-enchanted people. <laughs> because when it comes to commentary about the faith and it comes to resources on the church and the spiritual life, I feel like it's important for us to know whether the person we're reading who's commenting about the life of the church is commenting on it from an unenchanted perspective, a enchanted perspective, or a disenchanted perspective, uh, as opposed to a re-enchanted perspective. Absolutely. And this is something that, again, Lewis discusses with his, with his interlocutor in the dialogue, that, yeah, it's really important to kind of have these in mind when we're considering the commentary that we read about the church, when we're when we're hearing opinions, when we're hearing voices. Because, yeah, a lot of the voices that are, we'll just take Catholic media, a lot of the voices that are out there are enchanted voices. And that's not a bad thing. It's sort of the, the zeal of youth, the zeal of newness, the the being in love with, with Christ, being in love with the church, and that's good and that's wonderful. But we do have to recognize that sometimes that's coming from a place of a very new and in many ways immature faith. You know, it's gonna it's gonna go through its hard periods. And, and we encounter sometimes zealous new converts who are there, and we shouldn't discourage them, we shouldn't be cynical toward them, but we should also we just should recognize that you know everybody's on this journey. On the other hand, we have lots of voices in the church that are precisely disenchanted, right? They think they know better because they were in love with Christ. They were in love with the church, and now they're experiencing this low period. They're experiencing spiritual desolation. They've experienced some scandal, some heartache in the church. And now they, in a different way, are assuming that their experience is the whole. And they are telling everybody that their experience is the whole, that that, the, you know, uh, they're, they're thoroughly disenchanted. They're, they're disenchanted with God, with the church, with the faith, with priests. And again, their experience, you know, their valid experiences, um, but we have to recognize, they need to recognize that they too are on a journey and that, that ultimately, if we push through that, if we persevere through that, God will bring us out into a more mature place of faith, hope, and charity from which to kind of see, see our, our reality. David Mills just wrote an essay uh, not long ago 
about how if you're becoming Catholic, you need to prepare yourself for all kinds of people with weird and bad experiences of the church to confront you with their horror stories, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, in the in this process, you know, when, and and a lot of us have experienced it. You mentioned that you're going to become Catholic, and everybody's you know going to hit you from all these sides. Like, well, I knew this person who was Catholic, and they said it was the worst thing ever. Or I used to be Catholic, and it was terrible. And the nuns hit me with rulers. Or <laughs> you know, I know this person who believes this about Catholicism. They don't even have a real relationship with Jesus. I don't know what they're doing. Like all these disenchanted voices come at you. And yeah. even sometimes within the church, and, and you and I have talked about this before in our work, someone will come in enchanted and Catholics who are frustrated at the, at the problems of the church, but still in it will say, oh, well, you better watch out for this person and that person and this thing. And no, just you wait till this thing happens at your parish and want to discourage them and don't realize the damage that they're doing with their own disenchantment that they're kind of projecting onto an enchanted person. Right. And we do this in every area of life, right? We do this with the church. We do this with marriage. We do this with parenting. And again, we have people speaking from this place of disenchantment. I think one of the keys for, for moving properly through these ages of maturity that we, we might call them, these ages of enchantment, is precisely just humility, right? Because at every stage, our either our, our negative emotions at having experienced something difficult or our positive emotions at being enchanted can can cause us to want to hold on to the present stage and stay there to kind of have a, a spiritual arrested development if you will and humility is is a virtue that precisely helps us to continue to grow right we always want to surrender to reality in its fullness truth in its fullness we want to surrender to the reality of who god is and who we are and we want to be open to that journey continuing we don't want to just stay at enchantment we, we certainly don't want to stay in disenchantment I think always reverting back to, you know, trying to surrender in humility to, to the truth of things and being open to how God's leading us allows us to proceed with our relationship with the church, our marriage, our parenting, all the other things in our life to continue to, to go through that journey and not get stuck. All right. So let's get super practical here. Yes. Uh, when you're in that weird space and trying to get re-enchanted, what are the things you read or the things that you do? or the activities you engage in when you're trying to get back to that place of re-enchantment? Again, I think that humility is one of the key virtues here. And, and how do we practice humility? Well, certainly we need to uh, we need to be deep-rooted in prayer. I think you know, having practices such as the examination of conscience and, and attending the sacrament of confession in the church uh, is important. It's also really important to, to recognize who we're surrounding ourselves with. It's very easy when we're miserable to seek out other miserable company. Misery loves company, right? Uh, even if that would flatter our ego when we're feeling down and despairing, we want to surround ourselves with people that we recognize are older and wiser, more mature in the faith in the most important ways. Not just that they're smarter. And there's lots of, there's lots of smart people that are quite dumb. Uh, we want to find people who are mature spiritually, right? They're deep in faith, hope, and charity, and the other human virtues. Those are the people we want to surround ourselves with because they're precisely going to challenge those ways we want to stand still and hold on to our grudges. We want those people to encourage us and challenge us in healthy ways by their example. And so being careful to uh, keep company with people who keep your eyes up on heaven uh, and not kind of on your, the difficulty that you're experiencing. That's an important thing for helping us continue to move through and be open to continual conversion. Well, I think also to recognize that disenchantment is a drug that has mm. 
a stimulating effect on us. And if it wasn't the case, then there would not be a 24-hour news cycle. There would not be multiple 24-hour cable channels. There'd be like a couple of news shows a day, right? But there wouldn't be entire industries built off of trying to get your attention. There wouldn't be entire political campaigns talking about how terrible everybody else is. Uh, I mean, this is... It's a drug, right? I mean, yeah. we, we, we feel drawn to it, and ultimately, it's never enough like any drug. Right. Yeah, so we, you know, we, we stay rooted in the theological virtues, the virtues of relationship with God, and especially at those times when our emotions, our passions are not helping us move forward. Well, that's actually the time of real growth. And so we just, again, we, we practice the virtues, prudence, justice, courage, self-control. We continue to attend to the duties, responsibilities, and vocations that God has given us, especially when we're not feeling it, because that's precisely when our hearts are being transformed, they're being purified. And on the other end of that is to have a heart that is more like Christ, not just a mind that is more like Christ, not just a will that is more like Christ, but even a heart. And we want to imitate him, not just in how he thinks and how he chooses, but ultimately he wants to transform us to have hearts like he had. But that just takes persevering on through in faith, hope, and charity. Well, you thought we were talking about bicycles. Uh, but <laughs> John Mark Grodi, we've got chnetwork.org linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too, man. Thanks for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show Summer Special. We'll be back right after this. Did you know that in addition to coffee, the Mystic Monks of Wyoming also sell tea? And with it being iced tea season, now's a great time to give it a try. Whether you're looking to buy tea or coffee, be sure to go first to sunrisemorningshow.com and click the Mystic Monk link before you buy, and we'll get a portion of your purchase price. And while you're at our site, check out our online store, where you can buy Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Check out our store and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. One of the least known psalms, I suspect, is Psalm 109. A few lines may explain why. May his days be few. May his children wander about as beggars. Let no one extend kindness to him. But I'm struck by the way the psalm begins. It says, Be not silent, O God of my prayer. The psalmist wants nothing to do with the harsh words that we find in the Psalter. The psalmist is completely focused on giving praise to God. And those harsh words in this psalm are words spoken to others against the psalmist. But the psalmist says later on, well, let them go on with their cursing, but let God give blessing. And may people who say such terrible things as we hear elsewhere in the psalm be clothed with shame and dishonor. So Psalm 109 turns out to be a very wonderful psalm, giving us an example to focus on prayer rather than words that would hurt others. So let's join that psalmist and say along with him, Be not silent, O God of my prayer. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. John Cutterback. He's a professor of philosophy at Christendom College, and you can take his man or woman of the household course for free 
at life-craft.org. Dr. Cutterback, welcome back. Thanks, Annie. Good morning. It's good to have you. And we are going to be talking today about why everyone should garden. Now, I know that this is a favorite pastime of many, but Dr. Cutterback, I can drive about five minutes away to a rather large grocery store with a rather large produce section. So why should I put forward any effort to grow food when I can get it so easily? Good question. Of course, Annie, it's precisely because of that reality to which you refer that there's so much less gardening, right? And that's just kind of the way it tends to work when the, in human life. When the need to do something has been removed, we do it a lot less, and that explains a lot about where our households are. So we need now to step back, as in so many other aspects of our life, and, and ask exactly the question you're doing. Well, wait a second. Am I missing something that the need has removed here? So given that I don't have to do it, why might I do it? And, and I'll just start by saying I think it's an incredible gift of God and part of his plan for us. Our cultivation of the earth just ends up having significance, fruits, implications in our life that we didn't realize. This society didn't so much realize when everyone was just doing it anyway. Well, I I want to divinize the conversation, so to speak, um, in in a moment, but let's let's look at this conversation just through reason alone. Yep. So what is the benefit to the human person to have a connection to the land? Well, great way to put it in here. I, I, I very much appreciate the kind of doing it through the light of natural reason. Even from the light of natural reason, God's going to come back in here in a moment. Because mm-hmm. I'm going I'm I'm to go to Xenophon right now. We're going to the 4th century B.C. Wow. here in Athens. And uh, in, basically around the same time as Socrates, right before Aristotle. And, and, and Xenophon is writing. Then when they kind of still had to do it, there were great thinkers that were noticing, hey, this is part of a natural order. It's part of a natural plan. Aristotle's in the, in the same place. If you look at human nature, our need to eat, and the obvious ways that we need to get our food, clearly this is something from a natural plan, which in their mind is a divine plan, that it's, it's part of the natural growth of human persons, that we need to do this kind of work, that work is fitting for human persons, and that doing certain kinds of works develops our character and develops our understanding. So we can connect it to virtue, Annie, intellectual virtue, moral virtue, discipline, responsibility, insight. These things are naturally being cultivated by this kind of work. Is there a benefit to the human person of, of having some degree of reliance on the land? Xenophon explicitly says this. When you plant seeds, you pray. Such an insight there. This is where our food comes from. You, you can't just go out there and you know, zap it into existence. You can't just kind of make it simply by the work of your own hands. We have to grow it. <laughs> and, and that, it makes us depend upon the weather. It makes us depend upon the soil. We need to take care of it in a certain way. So the topsoil, which is we're finding more and more, is a limited and precious thing that's not just getting washed away. 
So, so we, we recognize our dependence, and, and, and surely this is part of what they're saying. God wanted it to be that way. That, mm-hmm. that is part of the teaching. What do you think we lose if we're simply going to the grocery store and, and just picking up whatever it is that, that we happen to want on any given day? You know, there's a number of things we could say there, and let's be clear. We're not, of course, I'm not going to counsel again, don't go to the grocery store, whatever you do. But the point of your question is very much, well, to the point, first thing I go to is the deeper sense of gratitude. Here's someone who just responds, well, I'll just kind of make sure that I'm grateful anyway. You know, gratitude is grown. Gratitude is cultivated, and we need to be reminded of it. And being more connected to the earth is a consistent source, not only, as we just noted, of encouraging us to pray, but the other side of that same beautiful coin is recognizing then that we are being gifted with these things. And therefore, when we grow them, we are much more tuned into this reality of this is gift, this is gift, versus just, well, I got plenty of money behind my credit card, zip, course. I just, you know, here's all the food I need, zip. That doesn't tend to elicit, among other things, a sense of gratitude. Well, and Matt Swain brings this up all the time. He's still sort of developing it in his head. Maybe you can help him out with it, Dr. Cutterback. He sees a connection between our lack of gardening and our lack of understanding of the gift that we have in the Eucharist, because we treat the Eucharist much the same way. We just go up there, zip, receive, eat, and go away as if it's like prepackaged food. Uh, well, that, that is a great line to pursue. And of course, what, what jumps to mind is the, is the words of the, the fruit, the work of human hands. There's so much behind and within this whole gift of the Eucharist, of being inbred, that is the work of human hands. But what if, what if our habits don't tune us in again to that? Conceptually, we can say, okay, we hear those words, we understand what that means, that is the work of human hands. Just as you can remind yourself when you are buying a cucumber at the store, this came from the earth, somebody grew this. But being human creatures, being creatures of imagination, being creatures where we constantly need to be kind of having things brought to our attention, it, it, it makes that difference. So I, I, am so I am so with that point. God's plan is always better. And, and, and part of that plan was the gift of our cultivating the earth. Yeah. I mean, right after he creates man, gives him life, what does he do? He gives him a garden. What do you think gardening teaches us about God, Dr. Cutterback? Gosh, you know, and it's, which one do we choose? Mm-hmm. H- how about that it teaches that his plan is generous, but at the same time difficult? That, that following the divine plan, plan is not ours. It's not originally ours. The plan for our flourishing is something we have to discover. This is true of human life. This is true of the life of a cucumber. Um, I, I'm looking out my window at the cucumbers as they're climbing up the bamboo poles that I put in there. I have to figure out what is in the nature of cucumbers, and I need to act according to that nature for them to flourish. That's such a huge thing. This connects to the moral life. 
it connects to God's plan for family and household, which you know is very, very dear to my heart. We need to now rediscover the sense of what's the plan for how we live in a family and household that will make us flourish like a cucumber, like a tree of Lebanon. You know, it is interesting, isn't it, that God really intends man to till and keep the earth before the fall. I mean, weeds are the result of sin, and and toiling in the garden is the result of sin, but gardening itself was ordained by God prior to his sin. So why, why do you think that God not only invites but desires man to participate in creation in this way? A great question. Sometimes, you know, Andy, we, we don't know exactly why, but we do know that it's so. And by being faithful, we're going to discover it. And we're, we're going to discover that by, by doing these things that we know that God is calling us to do, right? again, that's a kind of a, a general approach, his plan always turns out to be better. And again, this, this, this isn't saying that everybody has to be a farmer, but at least the vast majority of us, everyone for whom it's at least possible to be experiencing that aspect of God's plan for us, of putting seeds in the earth, helping them grow, receiving the fruit gratefully, praying, thanking the Lord, bringing that to others, it's, we're going to find this is going to bring out things in us. By the way, it's going to connect us with others because Adam and Eve were to do that together. It brings people together. There's just another beautiful angle on it. Well, Dr. Cutterback, if someone listening now wants to begin a garden, doesn't necessarily have a green thumb yet, what foods would you suggest they uh, start off growing just to sort of build confidence in gardening? I love that. And Let's say you just have a patio. Then, then you just go ahead and you get that pot, you get some potting soil, and then you go to the hardware store and you get a tomato plant, you get a pepper plant, and you pop that in. You just start with that in your pot on your patio. Next step up, you can get these pre-made raised beds. You're going to snap together in a little corner of your yard, maybe four feet by four feet. If you don't have any decent soil nearby, then grab buy some bags of topsoil, pop it in, and hey, there's still time here. Greens are always the basics. Things like chard, things like kale. And you know what? Some of these things, we've gotten away from them. They're not the best tasting things in the world, <laughs> but they're so good for you. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and, it, and, that's, and that's part of it, too. Greens are very easy to grow. Kale, chard, spinach, it's going to leap out of the ground for you. Well, it tastes better when you grow it yourself, I bet. It does. It does, and you learn. And you and you learn. There's a time, as in all things in life, there's a right time, yeah. and and there's just another lesson. Get it at the right time, not too early, not too late. God's always teaching us. He is. Life-craft.org is where you can go to connect with Dr. John Cutterback, and he's got a whole series on why everyone should garden that uh, you should definitely check out. Dr. Cutterback, thank you so much. Great to be with you again, Annie. Likewise. And you're listening to a summer special here on the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour.
You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Rob Jack with the Heart of St. Paul. We like to be in control of things. We want things to happen according to our plans and the ways that we expect. That way we can have a pretty good idea about how things are going to turn out. Before his conversion, it's clear that Paul sought to exercise absolute control over his life. After his conversion, Paul learned something quite different from his teachers, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Our desire for control is based on our limited knowledge of things, our weaknesses, and our not wanting to be surprised. Paul learns through his life in the Lord that his desire for control can contradict the will of God. If we want to do God's will, then we must allow God to do things his way. Paul reminds the Corinthians, who also like to control things, that we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is not about taking a step into the darkness, but rather it is about taking a step into the light of Christ. At first, it's frightening to walk by faith because we must put ourselves in God's hands. But slowly, it becomes assuring to walk by faith. Our stepping into faith helps us realize just how dark the world was and now how bright it is because the light of truth from Christ illumines it. And this is what we learn from the heart of St. Paul. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Amy Alsnauer, and she is the author of the children's book, The Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor. We're doing a little summer reading with her this morning to give you some ideas for maybe some books that you uh, have not picked up but might be, uh, might be good to throw in the beach bag this summer. Amy, welcome back. Thank you so much, Matt. Great to be here again. All right, so before we get into some of the recommendations themselves, when you set out for a summer reading plan, what kinds of things do you want to include on your own list? You know, um, it usually, right now, I feel like I have so many books that I need to read. I'm in a book club. I have all of these book projects that I'm doing, and there's a lot of reading associated with those. So it's hard to find a book that I can kind of sneak into that list that's just of my own choosing and has no um, obligation associated with it. Yeah, that is kind of the trick of it all. But also, I think that's why summer reading is so necessary, because those of us who are in... I mean, if I didn't carve something out, um, uh, Amy, I would be reading nothing but review copies from publishers all day, every day. (laughs) That Um, is so true. Yeah, so then uh, what would be a book that uh, that you want to try and carve out space for, or that you would encourage others to carve out space for this summer? So there's a book. So George Saunders is one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book called Lincoln and the Bardo, which I highly recommend. Um, But he just came out with a book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And it is his master class in creative writing. But it's also an anthology. So you get seven short stories by famous Russian novelists, which sounds really heavy, but they're short, short stories. And they're the absolute best. So he's handpicked these seven stories. And then after each one, he writes this incredibly entertaining. If you've read him before, you know he's 
hilarious. These incredibly entertaining little master classes in creative writing. So you could read it if you're interested in writing. You could read it just if you like short stories. And it's also something you can dip in and out of. So you don't need to read the entire book. So even though it comes and it's sort of intimidatingly thick, it is one of those great books that doesn't have to be read from cover to cover. Now, just because you uh, wrote a book about Flannery O'Connor for kids doesn't mean these all have to be short story-related recommendations. You know that, right? Right, <laughs> right of course. Uh, that being said— <laughs> I think it's, summer reading needs to have no guilt associated with it, and short I stories agree. tend to be no guilt. I agree. Well, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor herself was an appreciator of Russian uh, writers, especially especially yes. Dostoevsky. But yes. uh, if, you're, if you want to get on the short story trip, uh, allow me to add one more to the mix, and that is Leo Tolstoy's. Um, there's a compilation of his called Walk in the Light Where There is Light, uh, While There is Light, and it's 23 short stories from him, and those are super fast reads, oh, but they're wow. all really, really pithy stuff. So um, Yeah, that's amazing. While we're on O'Connor, I was going to recommend her prayer journal, which, again, is short and no guilt. <laughs> and the thing I love about this is that it has both the transcription of it and the facsimile. So you can see that she originally wrote it in one of those sterling composition notebooks, um, which I just love. Uh, A lot of people feel like they need to go out and get one of those really nice, you know, moleskin journals to start their writing project for whenever, for the summer, whenever. But she just has this little sterling, you know, you can get them at the dollar store for a dollar and, um, And it's a beautiful little collection of her reflections on what it means to be a Catholic writer and really not, it's more personal longing. Like she says things like, I would like to write a beautiful prayer. Please help me, dear God, to be a good writer and to get something else accepted. Um, So she's always talking about her calling, what she's supposed to be doing with her life, and how she wants to be doing it to give glory to God. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful prayer journal. Uh, I actually read it when I was on a silent retreat at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, and I was sitting there in the woods, and I laughed out loud, and I felt bad. I thought I might be disturbing other pilgrims, uh, because I read this passage from that (laughs) prayer journal uh, where she says, Dear God, I don't want to have invented my faith to satisfy my weakness. I don't want to have created God in my own image, as they're so fond of saying. Please give me the necessary grace, O Lord, and please don't let it be as hard to get as Kafka made it. So there you go. That's the kind of stuff you get in that prayer journal. That's great. Oh, it's so funny you brought up Kafka, because I just got a stack of picture books, because I write books for children, and so I read them all the time. And one of them is called Kafka and the Doll. And it's actually um, a story about these letters that he wrote back and forth with a little girl. And I think they've recreated, I think it's fictional. I mean, it's a legend about Kafka's life. But supposedly near the end of his life, he ran into this little girl in a park, and the little girl had lost her doll. And he took a shine to this little girl and felt badly for her, and so he wrote her letters from the voice of the doll. And he imagined that the doll was traveling around the world, and so the doll sent all these little letters back explaining her absence by saying that she was this adventurer. And the whole thing is sort of a meditation on death, but very lightly done. So you don't, you, you know, the doll has gone and you know that Kafka is dying. And all of this is done with such a, such a sweet um, touch. And it's beautifully illustrated. So check out some picture books as well. Indeed, indeed. You know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, kids, they're too young to think about death. Maybe those people think that those people must never have been parents. My kid talks about death all the time. Seriously? (laughs) So funny that you said that. It's so true. All right. What else you got? 
Let's see. Well, actually, um, I think in anticipation for this conversation, I thought we were going to be focusing largely on O'Connor. So I have a couple other O'Connor suggestions for you. Um, there's a couple books that have come out recently. Um, and again, I feel like there's a theme here. I'm All these things that you can dip in and out of. Um, I personally have always loved collections of letters. And Flannery O'Connor is a great place to start with letters. She has the huge collection called A Habit of Being, but there's two collections that have come out in the last couple years. One is called Good Things Out of Nazareth, um, edited by Benjamin Alexander, and it's just a lot of letters that weren't included in Habit of Being, a lot of wonderful letters. And then there's another one called The Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Caroline Gordon that was edited, put together by Christine Flanagan. And Caroline Gordon, a lot of people don't know her, but she was another um, very successful novelist from the South that was a generation earlier than O'Connor. And she was a mentor to O'Connor. So um, she said, what does she say about O'Connor? Something like, this girl can write or something like that. Um, but anyway, it's their exchange, and it's really Caroline Gordon offering a lot of advice to O'Connor about writing. So again, it's one of those books that if you have an interest in writing, and honestly, most people I meet do. Most people have a story they want to tell. Most people have a book they would love to be able to bring out of themselves, or they would just like to keep a journal, and even that feels intimidating. But So this is a great back and forth between two prominent novelists. Yeah, it's great stuff. Uh, good things out of Nazareth I have on my shelf. And I, it's it's a blast to read. Amy Alsnauer, yeah, totally. uh, get, get her book as well. It's called The Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor. It's beautifully illustrated. It's a kid's book, and it's linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Matt. You too. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show Summer Special. More to come after the break. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Tis the season for iced tea. If you're looking for some unique flavors to enjoy, the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming have a number of options, including lemongrass mint, ginger orange, and blossoming jasmine. Go check them out through our link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. And when you make a purchase, we earn a commission. While you're at our site, pick up a mug or etched travel mug, which are available in our online store. Get your mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee for tea at sunrisemorningshow.com. For a complete list of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network AM and FM stations across America, go to EWTN.com. Look for the radio pull-down menu and select AMF. FM stations. The list is updated regularly, so visit often. Again, go to EWTN.com, look for the radio pull-down menu, and select AM-FM stations. Also at EWTN.com, you'll find out how to listen to us on the web, on shortwave, and in some countries on satellite. You'll find it all on EWTN.com. 
The Sunrise Morning Show continues with Rita Heikenfeld from AboutEating.com. And summer is a great time to grill. I mean, I can grill in the snow. But summer is a particularly good time to grill. And turns out that there's some grilling in the Bible. Rita, good morning. Well, good morning. And you're absolutely right. It's an ancient, ancient practice. So where do we see uh, the uh, ancient people from the Bible stories that we're very familiar with cooking meat over fire? Well, let's talk about the book of Exodus in chapter 12. And this is where, Matt, God actually requires the Israelites to fire roast the meat during the Passover meal. And each family was supposed to get a lamb, and they were instructed by God to slaughter it, spread its blood over their doorposts, and then afterwards they had to cook the whole lamb. Fire roasted on a spit, not boil it or eat it raw. Um, And it had to be roasted whole head and all. And then, if there were any leftovers in the morning, they weren't allowed to just save them and and take them on their journey. They had to be burned up, sort of like um, grilling, to be disposed of. Well, we see Jesus, after the resurrection, uh, doing a little bit of grilling of his own for the apostles. I don't know what kind of technique Jesus used, but I'm guessing that if it was the Lord making the fish, it turned out pretty good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they fire-roasted that, too. Um, What happened, Matt, that's in John chapter 21 after the resurrection. What happens then, uh, Peter recognized Jesus after Jesus told him, hey, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And then they almost tore their nets with all the fish they got. And so when they climbed out, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and also bread that was being grilled, too. Well, that's pretty cool, and I know you've grilled bread before as well. So, I mean, this is this is a great story for so many reasons. Among them, uh, the fact that Jesus uh, has been denied by Peter three times mm-hmm. on the evening he was betrayed, and Peter does it in front of a charcoal fire, right, uh, where people are saying, hey, you know this guy, and he's saying, no, I don't. Well, it turns out that there, after the resurrection, Jesus cooks fish over, guess what, a charcoal fire, and asks Peter three separate times, do you love me? So uh, one of the most powerful stories of redemption in uh, the Gospels comes in front of, well, in front of a grill. But I imagine that generally speaking, if you don't have microwaves, if you don't have ovens like we understand them, grilling is kind of one of the best ways that everybody has to create a meal. Oh, yeah. Back then, too, when you talk about charcoal from wood, that was what they used. And um, sometimes what they did over a charcoal fire, they parboiled like the meat in cauldrons or cooked it in clay pots over an open fire. Sometimes they also grilled or like fried it actually on hot stones or hard earth, sort of like what we do with the pizza stone in the oven. And then sometimes they would set the coals on top. Sometimes they baked it in makeshift ovens. And I always have to think of way back in the day here when people actually used their wood-burning stoves and hearths to cook food. So, yeah, what an ancient way of cooking food that we still use today. All right, so for those who are not grill masters, what are some good tips that uh, the casual griller might be able to use to up their grilling game, as it were? For charcoal grills, Matt, you got to wait until your charcoal has burned up basically to an even temperature throughout before putting anything on the grill grates. And and here's why. When the charcoal first turns white, people think, oh, oh, it's ready to go. But it's hot on the outside, but still sort of cool on the inside. So you want to wait until at least two-thirds of the charcoal has turned white um, and the charcoal has stopped smoking. And then um, you just sort of spread the charcoal out. Then you can start your grilling. 
That's a pretty good tip. Uh, and then, of course, for gas grills, you know, I like to close it up and uh, get it all to a sort of internal temperature in case some of those burners are firing hotter than others. Uh, so it can be a, a tricky thing to do. But, uh, you know, the grill grates, uh, oiling them can help. Uh, you want to make sure your grill is hot, especially if you're planning to sear meat and then low cook it. You know, those are kind of different techniques that you might want to use. Do you use uh, any kind of um, a thermometer? Do you got a regular old one or uh, the old school or do you have an electric? How do you... Uh, check the meat temperature? Well, I wish I had one of those with the probes, but I've got a really good instant read meat thermometer, and I think that's the best because you don't want to open and shut the grill a lot, and that'll give you a safe and whatever temperature you desire. So, yeah, an instant read is, is the best, I think. What do you think? Well, I've actually got an app, believe it or not, oh, <laughs> that if I, I want to, I can, uh, I can leave the thermometer in there and uh, just kind of check on it every once in a while, see how it's doing inside. But, you know, I, this is, it brings up another important point about it is that, you know, just because you take the meat off the grill doesn't mean that it's quite yet done cooking. It's still cooking for a couple minutes after you take it off. Yeah, that's called carryover cooking. So that's why you always have to let the meat rest after removing it from the grill, just like we do in the oven. And then it will raise a a few minutes of, uh, rather, a few degrees of temperature after a few minutes. So, and, And when you let it rest, people tend to think that they have to wrap it really tightly in foil. No, just tent it, and that will keep enough heat in to finish cooking. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will grill burgers, they'll grill dogs, they might grill, you know, skirt steak or flank or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you want to grill a pizza, how in the world do you do that? Well, you know, there's a a little bit of a technique, um, and we did this in cooking school a lot. It was one of our most fun classes. Just lightly brush the, the dough after you shape it, and it's usually a craggy shape. And then what we do is transfer it to the less hot section of the grill and just um, let grill it for about four minutes and look at the bottom. It should be golden brown. And then you always, as I said before, keep the grill lid closed if you can. And then um, you take that dough off the grill and flip it over and so that the cook side is facing up. And then what we do, we take that off the heat mat, put our toppings on um, away from the heat, and I always put the cheese on first if you're using cheese because that helps prevent a soggy crust. And then you just proceed with your other toppings, and um, you're good to go after a few minutes on the grill. Grilled pizza's got such a unique kind of flavor and mm-hmm. texture that's a little bit different than just oven pizza. All right, so you got a few different things to help people maybe get some ideas to expand. I mean, a lot of people who grill kind of grill the same five things. So tell us about your recipe for grilled chicken legs. Well, you know, chicken legs are always pretty reasonable, just like the thighs, so you could sub in thighs as well. I've got, this is so easy, a a three-ingredient seasoning for grilled chicken. You can use more or less of any one ingredient. I usually take a cup of salt and four tablespoons of coarse or what they call the restaurant grind black pepper, and then about four tablespoons of granulated dried garlic. And here's why you want to use the coarse ground pepper and the granulated garlic because granulated garlic is bumpier than uh, powdered garlic, and so is um, coarse uh, ground black pepper. And what that does is it sticks to the meat a little better and doesn't tend to burn, doesn't make such a pasty rub, so um, you'll have better success. And I always oil, um, just brush the meat with a little bit of oil, even if it's um, like a fattier piece like thighs or legs, and that just helps uh, that dry rub. If you're using a dry rub, stick together on the meat so it doesn't just burn before the the food is grilled. 
That's some pretty handy stuff. And the one that I'm really excited about you sharing, because I do a variation of this too. And, uh, well, I'll tell you my variation here in a minute, but uh, we call it Mexican street corn. But tell us about mm-hmm. your grilled corn recipe. Oh, my gosh. I knew you would love this. It's, it's grilled corn with cotija, which is a Mexican corn. Oh, it's so delicious. And basically what you do is you have your ears of corn chucked, and then you're going to mix some sour cream and mayo together. And after that, you're going to, first of all, grill the, the ears of corn just till the kernels begin to char. And then after about 10 minutes, the corn will look sort of charred. And then you're going to brush that sour cream mayo mixture over the corn. And then after that, you're just going to put the cotija or maybe a queso blanco cheese in a dish. And I put it in a shallow dish just long enough to allow you to roll that um, sour cream mayo uh, smeared corn in. And then you just roll the corn into that cheese until it's covered. And then I sprinkle with a little cayenne for extra heat, and then we serve it with lime wedges. It is so delicious because basically you've got the corn all grilled and charred, and then you add the the mayo and sour cream and the cheese. Really good. How do you do it? Uh, Pretty much exactly the same way, except uh, we recently tried it with feta uh, instead of cotija. Now, I know that's mixing Greek and Mexican food together, (laughs) but it works pretty well. That sounds delicious. And just think even maybe goat cheese. Yeah. Oh, man. You're making me hungry, Rita. Well, hopefully some people have gotten some ideas of uh, some, you know, grill recipes as well as kind of remembering that, hey, this is not something new. Jesus grilled, so why can't you? Uh, Rita Heikenfeld, we've got abouteating.com linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. And I hope you do too, Matt, and I hope everybody grills a lot this summer. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. For Anna Mitchell and Paul Lockman, I'm Matt Swain. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying a morning offering. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you all my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world in reparation for my sins for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular, for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we are celebrating summer today. We'll be sharing some special summer-themed interviews, including some reading recommendations, a summer playlist related to the theology of the body, 
a recipe for peaches, which is a Bible food in season this time of year, plus much, much more. Hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Matt? It is the Sunrise Morning Show, and normally Bill Donahue joins us for a look at a song that hints at the ideas that are there in the theology of the body, uh, and we sort of complete the picture. It's a song from our popular culture that we throw a little holy water on, and Bill has got some ideas for a summer playlist, a theology of the body summer playlist. A little outside the box today, Bill. Good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to be outside the box. You know, God is outside the box, Matt, isn't he? He is, uh, and uh, he... he uses all kinds of things to draw us to him, even music by people who don't know him, but they have a hunger for him. And I think that you know the whole theme of this Twisted Mystics segment that we've been doing got started with the first song that you have on this playlist. Yes, this is Van Morrison's Into the Mystic, which as a 16-year-old, coming to grips with my ache and thirst for the infinite, this song stumbled into my life. And I just learned literally this morning that that Van Morrison was recording, writing and recording this song the month I was born. It was the fall around October of 1969, so Into the Mystic. Yes, and uh, of course, the idea behind Twisted Mystics is the idea that, you know, a guy like Van Morrison especially, is he's always talking about kind of love and relationships, but he's always talking a little bit about something more. He is. He he is deeply, you know, you hear that often phrase, uh, I'm spiritual, not religious. I mean, he's deeply spiritual. And I think Christian overtly in many of his songs, and a lot of people don't know that about Van Morrison. They hear, you know, Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girl, you know, maybe Moondance, Have I Told You Lately. But a song like Into the Mystics reveals, kind of pulls back the cover on his heart, which is longing for the infinite, is longing for God, and sometimes definitely explicitly. This song, he's talking about our beginning. We were born before the wind, younger than the sun. Uh, we sailed into the mystic. He's talking about God, we've come from God, and we ache to go back to God. He talks about a foghorn blowing, and I'll be coming home when that foghorn blows. I want to hear it. I don't have to fear it. So he's opening himself up like a true twisted mystic here, a mystic opening himself up to something much, much bigger than himself. As we are all called to do, and sometimes, uh, you know, even songs that aren't, you know, part of the liturgy can still open us up to things like that. What's the second song on your list here? Sure. So I, I kind of was thinking, you know, in fashion of John Paul II, who has the human drama as an origin, a history, and a destiny, right? A beginning, a middle, and an end. That the next song would be, uh, you know, we're drawn in the beginning into this mystical life. The second song is the fact that we kind of stumble sometimes. So it's Soldier by Ingrid Michaelson, who uh, also just a beautiful poet's heart. And she's talking about the fear of this journey into the mystic, into the deep. And she talks about, I don't believe in anything but myself. I don't believe in anything but myself. But then you opened up a door. You open up a door, and now I start to believe in something else. So you see in the middle of this, I feel afraid, but there's also something tugging at my heart. All right. So you got Ingrid Michaelson. You got Van Morrison on the playlist. Who else is in there? Well, here's the band that uh, has the most bizarre name ever, but they've got some real great stuff. Death Cab for Cutie. And Ben Gibbard is the main singer-songwriter of this band. This one's called Soul Meets Body. And I'm putting this, again, in that kind of historical playing field John Paul II talks about. This is the here and now, where we are. And in Soul Meets Body by Death Cab for Cutie, Ben Gibbard's talking about being in his tension. I want to live, he says, where soul meets body and let the sun wrap its arms around me, bathe my skin in water cool and cleansing, and feel what it's like to be new. 
I mean, as a Catholic, Matt, what is that conjuring up for you? What image? I mean, that is straight out of, you know, everything from Song of Solomon to John Paul II's Wednesday Addresses, the whole picture. It is, and it's very baptismal, too. It's, it's this encounter with reality, the light of the sun, the coolness of the water, and it's through those sacramental encounters that we come to God, right? He comes to us through the tangible, what we can see, smell, taste, and such. Later in the song, um, Ben Gibber talks about, we turn the dirt with our palms, cup like shovels. I know our filthy hands can wash one another's, and not one speck will remain. Like, he, he wants to be cleansed. He wants something beautiful, something new, and that is a twisted mystic. That's what every human heart wants. You know, with Death Cab for Cutie, they also have a couple of songs that just express just pure despair. Uh, you know, the, one of their songs that comes immediately to mind is I Will Follow You Into the Dark, which is, you know, one that uh, a lot of people probably have heard and thought, oh, this is a kind, you know, nice little song about, you know, love that prevails. But it, if you listen to the song, especially if you see the video, that's just like, well, there's nothing but darkness on the other side of this life, so I might as well love you now. Uh, so I always kind of hope that they'll one day find the answer and, and that they'll complete the thought. Exactly. You know, the, the, one of the tragic things about the story of Death Camp for Cutie, Ben Gibbard was a, a, apparently a Catholic, grew up going to Catholic school, which is hinted at in that song. So, yeah, with Twisted Mystics, we always want to throw that holy water on there. And not just that, on the lyrics of the song, but the prayer that this artist, this musician, would stay the course, keep digging, right? If you seek the truth, you will find it, he will find you. All right, Flaws by Bastille is next on your list. Yeah, Daniel Smith, the lead singer uh, and uh, founder of the band Bastille, English pop band, just, just a great song. I would look up on YouTube for our listeners the acoustic uh, recording of Flaws, filmed at uh, Abbey Road Studios, beautifully done with, st- oh, with a string section. In Flaws, Bastille is talking about just exposing our brokenness, right? When all of your flaws, all of my flaws are laid out one by one, the wonderful part of the mess that we made, we pick ourselves undone. Ones we've inherited, ones that we've learned, they pass from man to man. So it, it, as a twisted mystic... That's right, original sin at? right there, man. Exactly. You don't have to really dig too deep. It's here. This is part of the human drama. We all know it. We know there's something we've fallen from, and we can't kind of piece it together on our own. So later in the song Flaws, uh, Bastille, they sing, There's a hole in my soul. I can't fill it. I can't fill it. There's a hole in my soul. Can you fill it? Can you fill it? This is one of my favorite songs of all time, just the, the vulnerability of, of this band saying, like, there's this ache. And, you know, the drug, sex, rock and roll, the whole thing, they know those are finite realities that can never fill the hole. I love when a band can open it up and leave it open so that others can identify with that ache. And speaking of which, uh, the next song on your list, uh, one of the first songs we ever did in this segment, uh, because it just sums up that ache in even the song title in a single sentence by Foreigner, I want to know what love is. I mean, doesn't everybody? <laughs> exactly. And that, yeah, this takes us back probably a decade ago when we first started doing Twisted Mystics. So Foreigner, even the name of the band, by the way, we're strangers in a strange land, right? We're foreigners. I got to take a little time. You start singing a little time to think things over. So there's reflection, right? Now this mountain I must climb feels like the world upon my shoulders. It's a journey. Like the spiritual life is climbing this mount, the Mount Carmel, right, of our lives. And the ache of the singer, just, I can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. You can hear the echo of Adam, like, longing for a suitable partner, someone to share life with. Then he cries out, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. John Paul II would be all over this song. This would be in his iPhone, hands down. 
you mentioned uh, that that it's a journey. Journey is actually that's you're thinking uh, separate ways and don't stop believing. But you know, <laughs> the metaphor no, still but... works. All right. So finally, moving on to a song by a band that's shown up on this segment a number of times because the band members, some of them at least, are are practicing Christians and have have hinted at that. Of course, they have kind of a complicated Christianity, which we can go into at another point. But what's the song from Mumford and Sons that you picked for the summer playlist, the Twisted Mystics summer playlist? Yes, this is our final song to reflect on for this summer, and this is called "The Wild" by Mumford and Sons. Marcus Mumford being the main voice here. And I just feel like this caps it off for us. If we want a summer of reflection, if you want to really kind of dive deep, wherever you might be, the mountains or the sea, put this song on, kick back, and let the words penetrate. They invite us into the big concepts of life. It starts off, we saw birth and death. Can we be still? What makes you kind? From where comes your sparkling mind? So big existential questions from this extremely popular band getting us Again, to reflect, to think about our interior life. And he cries out later in the song, of course, what's that I see? I think it's the wild. Puts the fear of God in me. Just opens us up to mystery, opens us up to the transcendent that we're all made for, which is exactly what St. John Paul II does in his Theology of the Body. He invites us into the mystery. And again, these are songs by artists who have all kinds of different beliefs. Uh, some of them... Uh, you know, don't even believe in God at all. But there is that human ache, that human hunger, and art is just one of the ways that we express what it means to be human. And of course, uh, we always pray that the artists keep digging, as you said earlier, and fill in the blanks. But in the meantime, these are it's great for us to just remember the questions that led us to faith, uh, and they're articulated so well in some of these songs. Bill, if our listeners want to connect with you in the Theology of the Body Institute and uh, maybe hear more recommendations for a summer playlist, where do they go? Sure, jump on social media, just put at Bill Donahue or at T-O-B Institute and you'll find us. Thanks, Bill Donahue. I'm Matt Swain. We're back with more on the Sunrise Morning Show right after this. For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have traveled to nearly every corner of the world. Founded by St. Daniel Comboni, we are an international Catholic organization dedicated to ministering the world's poorest and most abandoned people. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at ComboniMissionaries.org. That is ComboniMissionaries.org. Support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption, Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. Hey Alexa, how many ways can I get EWTN? You can get EWTN on television, via cable and satellite, on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, 
and Google Play. You can get EWTN Radio in your car on Sirius XM Channel 130 and on the go on any mobile device with the EWTN app. And here's the best news. Now you can get EWTN's great programming on me. With us on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. James Schrader, Vice President of Psychology Services at Easter Seals Rehabilitation Center. You can find him and all of his writing online at james-schrader.com. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. So it's that time of year when kids are on summer break. How important is it, do you think, for them to go outside and play with other kids? Boy, it's really important. So for a few reasons, it's important. One, just activity itself, we know, is is really important for physical, psychological health in general. It's important for creativity. You know, all of us learned a lot of things by just kind of creatively playing outdoors and kind of figuring out how to build things and, and figuring out just kind of how the way the world worked. It's also great, important for relationships, although if you're at our house, you hear a scream or, you know, a cry come about every 10 minutes, but (laughs) (laughs) it's important to understand that relationships um, are actually understood more and more as kids play just in general. So there's, there's a lot of reasons it's a good thing for our kids to do. Do you think there's also a spiritual dimension to this about the need to, to you know, for one thing, get out into it nature, but at least to be around other people without any other screens? Oh, I sure, I sure do. I think that the natural world is just replete with kind of a spiritual experience. I remember being a little kid, and we were we had a woods behind us, and we're very fortunate that it kind of became our playground. And we would build forts during the summer, um, pretty elaborate forts back in the woods. And there was just a sense of camaraderie that really developed um, between my brothers and I and doing that, and a sense of kind of a little bit of times just transcendence from our kind of more structured world because we were kind of the originators of our, we could say, destiny down there. You know, the forts and everything else became our, our kind of our city. And, um, and I think it kind of transcended a little bit of the youth in that way. And there are a lot of reasons, safety reasons and otherwise, that have led to kids being more supervised when they play, even from when I was a kid. But do you think that play has become a bit too programmed in recent years? Yeah, I think I think we're getting into the area where we're overstructuring our kids' play, and it's not necessarily a good thing for them and for us. And, you know, again, like you mentioned, the safety thing, I, I, one of the things I think that's great is our kids, you know, these days wear bike helmets and do some other things that our kids of yesteryear didn't, and that's really important. But what I, I watch with a lot of families happening these days is that they are really structuring even their young kids' play, and out of great intent. You know, they want their kids to be active and involved, but... Unfortunately, let's say, you know, you're really, you've got your four-year-old involved in a, a sports league or you're going to the fun factories or whatever on a regular basis. It, it requires a lot of time and money to do that. And again, I mean, you know, there's, there's positives to take away from that, but I've had a number of parents say to me, you know, who even have young, young kids, like, I feel like I'm already really, really busy. And if you feel like you're really, really busy taking your four-year-old everywhere, <laughs> imagine what it's going to be like if your middle schooler and your high schooler has got all sorts of schedules that obviously at that age even get much more elaborate. And that's where 
I think we might need to consider we might want to pull back on overstructuring all this play. Yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to something like organized sports. Um, do you think also that the level of competition that I think is imposed on on many of these kids uh, has taken away some of their innocence? It has. Yeah, the, one, of the, one of the biggest worries I have from a psychological sense is that young child play is designed in its purest form to be very creative, free-flowing, um, I hate to say it, but unorganized. I mean, that, that's the way that young child play is designed, and that's the kind of the way that they were. They learn kind of the rules of relationships and the rules of kind of nature in general. But when we, as adults, impose kind of our competitive, organized sense as an overlay on young child's play, what you're finding is is these kids more and more, it's, it's just not working developmentally. So, you know, when you have four- or five-year-olds comparing themselves about how good of a soccer player they are to another kid, that's not developmentally normal in, in many ways to be really ultra-competitive there. Because kids, that, typically, if you let them have a soccer ball outside, watch what they do. They just are kicking it back and forth. They're throwing it all over the place. I mean, they're scrambling around. It's not until we impose our kind of, we call it, rules of competition that things become very different there. Yeah, I was going to say, not that some competition is bad, because it does encourage you to, to work harder and, and earn something, right? But, I mean, if all you're doing is competing with other kids and you start that competition at such a young age, I mean, that kind of shapes how you're going to interact with others in general as you grow up, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Jack Nicklaus, you know, the, the famed golfer, had a great, great quote years ago when he was asked about how early you should really start teaching your kids, you know, art of golf and the competition. He said, well, he's like, basically when I can get them in from the creek bed and I can figure out how to, like, you know, hurrying them up, he's like, that might be the time you do it. But his point was this. He said, you know, young kids really should be allowed to free flow. And when we try to impose what we think as adults is typical, we run into a developmental bound or kind of barrier that's um, problematic. Yeah, and I mean, this is not to say that we're in favor of every kid getting a trophy for everything, correct? Right, right. correct. No, this is just about trying to encourage creative, active lifestyle um, where we can, you know, we can go out, we can compete, but we can realize that competition in and of itself is not the end result, that, you know, you recognize that the end result is we just want to have a really enjoyable time, maximize what we can do as we get older, and, and learn to just be active and enjoy that. That's what we're looking for. Just enjoy other people. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. something that you do have to learn, don't you? You do, and all those screams out in our backyard, I hope those are <laughs> learning to enjoy other people slowly and slowly. As long as there are no injuries involved, we're in good shape, right, Dr. Schrader? It's all Absolutely, healthy. Absolutely, yes. All healthy all growth there. <laughs> We've been talking to Dr. James Schrader. The, uh, his website is james-schrader.com, and he's got a great piece up over there um, from his archives called So the Tree Said, The Lost Art of Play, that I'd really encourage listeners to go check out in his archives. Dr. Schrader, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks as always. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. 
What does the Church say about contraceptives? The Catholic Church is very specific and unwavering in her teachings that the use of contraceptives to prevent pregnancy is, in every case, immoral and intrinsically evil, a serious moral wrong. People sometimes ask why the Church is so adamant when they feel this should be a couple's decision. The fact is that the procreation of children is one of the inherent purposes of marriage and as such cannot in any way be interfered with by any means, mechanical or chemical. The marriage sexual act is God's way of continuing the human race. To accept God's wonderful gift of sexual relations without also being open to the possibility of conception is to void God's plan. To employ any means of preventing conception as a result of sexual relations can never be justified, even if a couple is married. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2362 through 2366. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. It is time to take a look at some summer reading suggestions with Joseph Pierce from the Augustan Institute. Uh, he's also online at faithful, faithandculture.com and jpierce.co. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Matt. But we've got some picks of yours that you want to recommend. Let's start with a conversion story that's been making the rounds in the past few months especially. Yeah, yeah. So basically that book that's really struck me uh, is um, From Fire by Water by Sorab Amari. Uh, the subtitle of that book is My Journey to the Catholic Faith, and, and uh, as the title would suggest, it is a conversion story. But it's so articulate uh, and so different um, from, well, I, I don't know if any conversion story could be called Run of the Mill, but it's, it's certainly uh, off the beaten track, shall we say. And it's off the beaten track for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, because uh, we have a lot of people who come into the church from Protestant backgrounds, but he comes from not just a Muslim background, but also an agnostic background and even a Marxist background. And I imagine there's a little bit of overlap at parts of his story with yours. Yeah, well, I've actually I've written something for the imaginative conservative talking about the sense of deja vu, rather peculiar deja vu, because you'd think that my path to conversion would be very different from his. I mean, he was born in Iran uh, in the mid-1980s, so almost a quarter of a century after me. I was born in England. He's from a Muslim culture, a nominally Muslim family, and I'm from a, a nominally Anglican family in England. You'd think nothing at all in common. Yet, as I read his story and his journey from a very very different starting point, uh, there are so many parallel, I want to talk about parallel paths that become convergent paths that ultimately, of course, meet in Rome. And uh, I, I wonder why it is that conversion stories seem to get into places that mere arguments and debates can't. Well, I think it's about witness, and I think that God speaks to us most powerfully through the telling of stories, um, and of course our life stories are, are, are very powerful stories, and when, when you see a life story that leads from bad places to worse places, but eventually to the best place, ultimately, please God, heaven, then that's a very powerful story. So I, th I think that conversion stories have this perennial power to move us and edify us, perfect for summer reading, in fact. Well, and while we're recommending conversion stories for summer reading, I want to recommend one that ties into our next book by the American Chesterton Society called My Name is Lazarus. It contains 34 
conversion stories, all from people who say that G.K. Chesterton was a big help along the way for them. Joseph, I don't know if you know this. I'm actually in there. I'm, I have 4,000 words of that however many thousand word book. Well, uh, you and I you and I both are also in there. And in fact, I, I, I was tempted to, to include that in my own summer reading list. So I'm, I'm glad that you've interjected it because uh, it is a wonderful book. It really is astonishing and astounding how many people have been helped along the way on their path to Rome by G.K. Chesterton. So uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're in that book. I'm in that book. Many other people in that book. And these are contemporary converts. And of course, in my book, Literary Converts, I, talked about, you know, I talk about many historical converts from the 20th century that were also helped into the church because of their knowledge and, and friendship, so to speak, with G.K. Chesterton. Well, let's talk about Chesterton then as your uh, next summer reading pick, because you know a lot of people, if they're in the uh, mix of day-to-day life, they think, well, how in the world am I going to have time to really sink my teeth into Chesterton? But on vacation, you got maybe a better chance to get into some Chestertonian things. What's a book that you'd throw out as a possible recommendation to throw in the summer reading bag? Yeah, I think I think beginning with Chesterton himself is is difficult for many people because of his writing style. So I often recommend that actually that, that reading good books about Chesterton might be a good way in, and then we can uh, immerse ourselves in, in Chesterton later. So the book I want to recommend is a new book by Dal Alquist, uh, who's the president of the American Chesterton Society, called Night of the Holy Ghost: A Short History of G.K. Chesterton. It's, it's a very easy read. Um, Dale writes very eloquently and in a very um, page-turning manner. So it, and that's what you want, of course, summer reading. Uh, you, you don't want anything that's, that's going to be too heavy. You want something you can relax with. And this book you certainly can relax with, and it's a good introduction to Chesterton. So the first chapter is Chesterton the Man, and the next chapter is Chesterton the Writer, and the, the chapter after that is Chesterton the Saint, question mark. In other words, you know, to what extent can we consider Chesterton a saint, and to what extent is it realistic to believe he could be, one day be canonized? Well, you know, the first time I ever read Chesterton, I had seen someone reference him in a book. I was not Catholic. I was a very committed evangelical who loved Lewis and Tolkien, and somebody said, well, you should read The Man Who Was Thursday. And I read it, and I loved it, but I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and uh, it was... The Man Who Was Thursday, Matt, is nobody has any idea what's going on the first time they read it. I've taught it many times, and I've now got a handle on it, but it's, it's not an easy book to understand. Well, that being said, it helps if you know a little bit about Chesterton's vision, his understanding of paradox and creation and beauty and his uh, sort of ethics of Elfland, if you're going to be tackling any of those fiction works especially. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole point is I think that Dale Olkowitz's book that I'm recommending is a good way to let us get to know Chesterton. That's the idea. It's an introduction to Chesterton, introducing him to us as a friend that we can trust. Now, I would say, actually, I've I've actually addressed this to Dale directly, that my eyebrows raised in in consternation and maybe a little bit of irritation at the fact that he does gloss over and hardly mentions at all Chesterton's novels in his appraisal of the works, which I think is a significant sin of omission. But, you know... uh, any book, however much we like, it's going to have some things about it which we think could be better. But overall, this is this is a great introduction to G.K. Chesterton. Right. It's been tried numerous times. I don't know how you sum up G.K. Chesterton in one book. But uh, let's move on to another topic that we po- that you attempted but can't possibly sum up into one, one book. We talked about summer readings. You first recommended From Fire by Water by Sora Bamari, Night of the Holy Ghost, A Short History of G.K. Chesterton by Dale Alquist. And then this one, I think, is a great starter for anybody who wants to really get into literature but is used to reading airport novels. It's actually a book by you. (laughs) 
Yes, I, 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 I have indulged myself when you asked me to recommend some summer reading by actually suggesting a, a title by yours truly. It's called Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know. And the, the reason I'm recommending it is not merely because I've written it. It's because I, I do think that many Catholics are aware of the fact that they should know literature better than they do. They're aware that, if you like, it's a gap in their knowledge or, or possibly even some sort of sin of omission. And my book, Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, offers a very easy easy way in to the great works of literature. It's meant to be an introduction of, a, of, of the whole of, of the history of, of Western literature, but in a way which is accessible. So it's not a very long book, just a couple of hundred pages. Uh, the chapters are short, and separate chapters on, on, on separate writers or some of the great novels, etc. And I, I think it's very accessible. And I, the reason I'm keen on this is I think it's necessary in our day and age for, for Catholics to... Um, gain a knowledge of the great um, storytelling uh, that uh, the Christian authors have had over 2,000 years and to become part of that Western civilization, that Western culture, to graft themselves onto it by becoming knowledgeable, at least up to a point. This is just an introduction. I'm hoping it will whet people's appetites to maybe delve deeper themselves into some of the indiv- individual authors. Well, and in this age where everybody's saying, well, uh, STEM is what you should be teaching your kids. And I always joke that the four horsemen of the postmodern apocalypse are science, technology, engineering, and math. But <laughs> the, but in terms of literature, I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, it seems like useless to get into stories. But really, this is how we understand the human condition. This is how we understand philosophy. This is how we understand the human yearning for God is by getting into these great works of literature that have tackled these things throughout the centuries. Exactly. I mean, what, what I always say is the reason that the humanities are crucial to our understanding uh, of the world is that the humanities teach us about humanity. And if, and if, if we have an education which is all oriented in engineering and, 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 and math, we're not actually understanding who we are as human beings, which is, going, first of all, going to mess us up as regards ourselves. It's also going to mess up our relationship with others. It's going to mess up human society. It's going to make a mess of things. Uh, so, you know, being a good mechanic and a good engineer is no good if you're not a good human being. Well, and this is something that's uh, been reiterated a few places. Uh, the uh, I, I like to always invoke Ian Malcolm, the scientist from Jurassic Park, on this when he's talking to this man who's trying to genetically engineer and uh, revive the dinosaur. He says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't, uh, they didn't stop to think if they should. And really, that's kind of what this is all about, is understanding why do we do what we do what is right, what is true, what is virtuous? Uh, I mean, I think that a lot of us can look around and say, well, one of the biggest problems in our society is not that we don't have the right laws in place, it's just that we're not a virtuous people. <laughs> and this right, is, exactly. I mean, obviously yeah. virtue is crucial, and what, what uh, the STEM does is teaches how things work, but in, that STEM cannot uh, ask the why questions. And literature and the humanities in general, philosophy, theology, etc., give us answers to the why questions, why things should be done in a certain way, why things are, not merely how they can be done. Because as you, as you rightly say, if we don't have an ethical basis uh, we, and we know how to produce a, a weapon of mass destruction and we don't know that we shouldn't do so, we're in big trouble. I, mean, I sometimes say that modern man is so stunted in his growth that it's like putting a, a machine gun, uh, as regards technology, it's like putting a machine gun in the hands of a five-year-old. It's, it's dangerous and deadly. Do you recommend memorizing passages from the great ones? I actually do, and I am not very good at it because I, in my own education, we, we, we you know, I was 
the product, the child of progressive education where it was thought horrible to force someone to actually learn something by heart. But I really do think if you learn a poem, for instance, a poem by heart, you internalize it, you interiorize it, it becomes part of who you are, it becomes a part of the very fabric of your being. And although you may not enjoy the process of doing the learning, once you have it within you, it's something which enriches you for life. It's absolutely something which is beneficial and should be part of, of education. Yeah, I, I learned uh, I learned that importance by starting by memorizing the scripture as a young Protestant kid. <laughs> but uh, I, I applied it to Dante and Dickens and uh, a few others along the way. And it is valuable just to have a few passages that uh, you know from these great works that just kind of sink in and resonate with you. Uh, your last book that you just recommended, Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know. Joseph Pierce, I know that if somebody picks up one of these books that you recommend in that book and is like, okay, I picked up Dante, I have no idea what I've gotten into, or Milton or whoever, if they want to find some of your your resources uh, to help understand some of the great works, uh, where do they connect? Well, I would say just just very quickly that that book, Literature, whatever your Catholics should know, has a, a chapter on Dante and a chapter on Milton, so that would be a good place to start. But if you're talking about online resources, then people can check out what I'm doing uh, at faithandculture.com uh, with the Augustine Institute and also at my personal website, jpierce.co. Thanks for listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. Back right after this. It's 35 past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack with a Catechism Moment. In the world in which we live, the virtue of chastity is something that if it is not ignored is often mocked. Paragraph 2337 gives a definition of chastity. It says there, Chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. The virtue of chastity is both the gift of God, and it also requires human effort. Virtues develop through their daily practice, and chastity is no exception. Paragraph 2342 states that self-mastery is a long and an exacting work. One can never consider it acquired once and for all. Paragraph 2344 expresses the most difficult part for us today. Chastity presents an eminently personal task. It also involves a cultural effort, for there is an interdependence between personal betterment and the improvement of society. We can see in our own world what fruits unchastity has produced. Divorce, teenage pregnancy, abortion on demand, contraceptives in schools, many people with sexually transmitted diseases. It seems that society views people today as possessing only instincts. And since we cannot stop instincts, we have to protect against them. God teaches us that we are not driven by instincts, but by human reason, in which we can control ourselves and shape ourselves into truly responsible people. The bodies and souls that God has given us are sacred. They are to be respected and cherished, disciplined and loved. When we can show that example to a world based on crass personal pleasure, devoid of consequences, Perhaps, then, we may produce in this world a culture of chastity and a culture in which there is a well-ordered love of God, love of self, and love of neighbor. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show, and it's time for Bible Foods with Rita Heikenfeld from AboutEating.com. Good morning, Rita. Well, good morning. 
always thrilled to talk to you. And today we talk about peaches, which you can find in Second Samuel, I believe. Yes, in, in chapter 16, and actually in verse 1. Here is the passage. A hundred bunches of summer fruits. That's what won David's gracious approval for the servant Ziba. And, Annie, some biblical scholars think that those summer fruits included peaches because peach kernels were actually found in Egyptian tombs like thousands of years ago. And when you think of peaches and pears and, of course, quinces and cherries and apricots, they were all grown pretty good in New Testament times. And the Romans called the peaches Persian apples. Persian apples? Why is that? Well, that was because the peach was brought to the Mediterranean area, that area, from Iran, and we uh, know that was formerly called Persia. Hmm. And that's why they called them Persian apples. But 300 years before Christ was even born, um, people in Greece were eating and and propagating peaches. But then the Romans started uh, propagating them about, oh, about 100 years after Christ died. Um, And the interesting thing is early peaches back in Bible days, Annie, were propagated by seed. And we don't do that anymore, of course. Um, because that was really the easiest way to transport the plant. They couldn't bud the trees like we do now. And then peaches became available in America about the time of the American Revolution. So they really do have a long and storied history going back to Bible days. And life was never the same in America, right? Mm, You Uh, bet. What a wonderful addition to our plants in the United States. Now, here's a question, Rita. How do we know when a store-bought peach is actually ripe. Well, here's what I do. First of all, smell. I mean, the aroma is one sign, of course. But you know what? When you buy them in the store, um, sometimes they're sort of hard. Um, That usually means they're not ripe, but I always tell people, don't just look at that beautiful blushing pink side. Mm -hmm. Check out the area closest to the stems, Annie, where it, you know, is on the stem. And if it's creamy yellow right around that top, it's ripened on the tree. But if it's real green... They may have been picked before they were completely ripe, which is usually the case with store-bought peaches, don't you think? Yeah, I think so, and that's excellent advice, but do they ripen anymore after they're picked? No, not really, but here's what what happens. They will get softer and sweeter, Um, so if they're too hard, what I do is I just put them in a single layer on the counter um, just for a couple of days. Um, I don't like to put them in the fridge because... Um, they get a little mealy texture, mm-hmm. but if I have to, I will, and that's what I tell people. Um, if worse comes to worse and you've got to put them in the fridge, go ahead and do that, but just bring them to room temp before eating for the best flavor. And when they're out for those couple days, as I said, they do get softer and sweeter, so people think they're more ripe, but they actually get more palatable. Oh, okay. Well, as long as they taste better at that point. That's all I care about. Yep, that's it. (laughs) And of course, we also have the option in addition to fresh peaches, you can get canned peaches, you can get frozen peaches. Are they as nutritious? Yeah, I think for the most part, um, depending upon how they're processed, you know, they they take them from the tree and they process them either canned or frozen. Uh, A lot of times you can buy peaches packed in water or light syrup or heavy syrup. Um, and, And what heavy syrup means just means more sugars added. Um, And then frozen peaches, you've got an option. You can buy them with or without sugar. Either is fine, though. Which do you prefer? Just Well, I like the frozen, but um, I've got 
peaches here, so I've been canning peaches like crazy. I've been, you think I was in the 1800s. I need to stop asking you these questions because I get so jealous. (laughs) Well, you know what? I can't sew. I can't craft. So God gives us each all one talent, and mine is food. <laughs> well, I'll just come over and eat some of yours then, because I'm I'm stuck with frozen peaches, because that's what I can get. Now, you've got an easy upside-down peach cobbler recipe to share with us. Upside-down peach cobbler? Yeah, and I call it upside-down, because what you do is um, you're going to pour some batter in first. Really easy. And then um, on top of that, you can either put canned or frozen thawed peaches. And what happens is the peaches fall to the bottom during baking, and the batter rises to the top, and it makes a sort of a nice cake-like cobbler crust. And i got to tell you, this is a very easy recipe. Basically, peaches, some self-rising flour, and some sugar and milk and vanilla. And that's about it. What you do is, as I said, you pour the batter in the pan, and then you pour the peaches over it, and you bake it about 35 minutes at 350 just delicious and it's really good with a little dollop of whipped cream or ice cream Mm, you're making me hungry Mm -hmm. sounds incredible and we of course have aboutEating.com linked at sunrisemorningshow.com Rita it was so good catching up with you today same here Annie and I'll talk to you next week it's a special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show we'll be right back Laura Teach Me to Pray, the Ignatian Prayer Series, can now train you and others electronically to become facilitators and bring the Ignatian way of prayer to your parish. Come to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and help others do the same. Don't pass up the opportunity to join this work of the new evangelization. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on Digital Training. That's LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on Digital Training. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show and encourages other Catholic business owners to do the same. Central Fabricators knows that the Sunrise Morning Show is where you'll get the news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been in business for more than 70 years. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Do you like your coffee cold and maybe a little sweet this time of year? Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee for a variety of flavors that would be perfect for your summer cold brew. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com before you buy, we get a commission from your purchase. By the way, our Sunrise Morning Show travel mugs are really good at keeping drinks cold, and you can find those in our online store. Pick out a mug and link to the Mystic Monks through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. This is Conversations with Consequences, where we delve deeper into issues affecting our church, our country, and our core, the family. As Catholics, we need to be informed, aware, and able to talk through some of the tough topics that we're facing in our culture and in our world. Conversations with Consequences gives us the tools to do so. It's not enough to pray. We have to be a light for the world. Conversations with Consequences, this Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Sunrise Morning Show continues with Danielle Bean from CatholicMom.com. You can check out her girlfriend's podcast and her You're Worth It retreat over at DanielleBean.com. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning. How are you? I am doing just great, but I'm starting to experience this now for myself. Uh, We're about halfway through summer now, 
And I'm wondering if you could just speak to the mental state of parents and probably kids, um, because kids are home from school. They've been home from school for an entire month now and are at home 24-7. Yeah, uh, that's a challenge. I think sometimes we don't make the proper adjustments in order to deal with that, in order to preserve the goodness in our relationships. And sometimes <laughs> our kids can start to get on our nerves. We can start to get on their nerves. Things, you know, rub up against each other. So I think if people are experiencing friction during the summertime, then it's time to, you know, take stock. It's time to pause, take a breath, figure out what's bothering everybody, and, you know, make some rules. I certainly have done this over the years. One year in particular, I remember going in and thinking, Usually the kids had chores during the school year, but I just kind of relaxed that whole schedule because I was like all into the whole summer is time off and we're going to have a real relaxing time together. Well, <laughs> guess who ended up doing all the chores and angry at every single member of her family for being such <laughs> bob? It was me and it was time for a reassessment. So you got to lay down some ground rules. Some sort of structure is seriously important. Danielle, I laugh because I identify. Um, how much more does a parent appreciate their teachers at this time of year? <laughs> yes, this time of year and in the fall as well when you're sending them back there. Um, I think that it's not that we don't love our kids and we do love our kids. So, I mean, but that said, we're, we get used to our routines. And, you know, some kids really thrive in an environment where they're not reporting to, to mom and dad all the time and they have other grown-ups that they're looking to please and impress. So, for sure, losing that motivating factor, and uh, sometimes it all just goes out the window in the summertime. So, like I said, you might need some structure of routine, of schedules in your day, times that people are getting out of bed, times kids are taking naps, times where it's just quiet time. Maybe you want to schedule in time when nobody bothers mom. You might need to do that. I think it's it's important to recognize your need for, for rest and respite and then find a way to make it happen. Yeah. Um, uh, can I just ask for a friend right now about the whole nap issue? How do you manage to get a child to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon in, in summertime or go to bed on time for that matter? It's really tough. I remember, you know, going to bed as a kid, and it was still light out, and I felt like that was so wrong. But, you know, my parents were kind of geniuses about it because they allowed us in the summertime, and this never was allowed during the school year. When you went to bed, you went to bed. But in the summertime, you had a set bedtime, but you could sit and read in your bed if you wanted to. But this was like a special privilege, and you weren't allowed to, you know, be, you know, wrestling with your brothers and sisters instead. That was the only option was quietly reading in your bed. And I have such fond memories of that and doing the, the library summertime reading club and going through tons of books that way in the summertime with the fan in my window. So, I mean, you can create memories in that way. Um, and so if someone's resisting nap time, you can't force someone to go to sleep. But you can say that this is quiet time and this is how we're going to observe it and set some basic ground rules for it. Fair enough. Like I said, I was just asking for a friend. Yeah, I know. I know. It's um, I mean, can you really blame the kids for being so stir-crazy when they're at home all the time? Yeah, no. I mean, they're used to having a very stimulating environment for most of their day. So um, you don't have to be the cruise director entertainer for your kids in the summertime. But, you know, maybe signing them up for some activities will make sense. Maybe making sure they can have some friends over for play dates makes some sense. Maybe, you know, joining a membership at a pool or going to a lake or planning a, a walk on a trail. It doesn't have to be fancy, but these are opportunities to do things that you don't have the chance to do throughout the school year. You have more time. Um, 
um, and, you know, and more opportunities to be doing things outdoors. And I really think people should take advantage of that. Summer is a season that's set apart, and we should treat it a little bit differently so that we can get the most benefit out of it. But, Danielle, it is so dang hot outside. <laughs> I mean... I know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, maybe you want to plan a trip to a, a park that has a pool or, you know, a, a fountain or, um, you know, and maybe you want to avoid those deadly hot hours of the afternoon. Um, one of the favorite things that I used to do, we live in the lakes region of New Hampshire, years ago when the kids were little was I didn't take them to the lake in the middle of the day when it was so crowded and the heat was horrible and I'd be stuck with a baby in the sand. But I would take them after dinner time, and the, the beaches were pretty clear at that point. We'd have it to ourselves. It was beautiful. I have such beautiful, peaceful memories of those times when, you know, it, it was a great way to kind of cool off before bedtime and burn off some of that extra energy. So, you know, look for a way to, to switch it up a little bit. You don't have to be outside in the terrible heat of the day. Yeah. Can you speak to the importance of limiting screen time during the uh, the afternoon hours when it is so hot and everyone just wants to sit in the AC and, you know, fiddle on their phones? Yeah, and I get it because I'm tempted to do the same thing. So um, setting some rules ahead of time and talking about them and being clear about them, I understand the temptation to do it, and it's okay for, to some extent to, to use screens for entertaining your, yourself or keeping your kids occupied. But just know that their brains aren't built for that, and especially in the summertime. That's a tragedy. So allow your kids to be bored. Set limits and structure on their screen time. And when it's over, it's over, and deal with the whining until they, you know, put themselves together and go find something creative to do. <laughs> Go to a library. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Lots to do there. So changing gears here a little bit, Danielle, obviously school is out, but does that mean that education and particularly religious education has to stop for the summer months? Yeah, well, the official stuff definitely stops, and it feels good. Yeah. You know, it, feel, it feels good because you, know, you get in a routine. Routines are great, but then they get old. And mm-hmm. um, so I find it's really helpful to have that breakup in routine. Um, but definitely in, in our family, for sure, and in our parish, religious education doesn't stop with the school year. It just it changes what it looks like, you know. Uh, first of all, we've got a great VBS program at our parish that my kids look forward to every year. It's an mm-hmm. epic, exhausting week that they love. Um, But there's a number of other ways that both being partially homeschoolers here, I very much approach the summertime as a time when our our routine changes, our schedule changes, the way we learn changes, but the learning doesn't change, the fact that we're always learning. Um, And summertime's a great time to do kinds of nature studies, which is great for schoolwork, but also great for turning our kids' minds toward creation and Mm. an appreciation for for God. And, you know, even very young children, I find, are, are very um, receptive to the idea of talking about God and our Creator, even as you're, you know, sitting out around a campfire under the stars at night. It's such an awesome way to experience the, the wonder and beauty of, of the natural world. Well, it is a great time to, I, I, I always say, I'm a student of Pope Benedict and talking about how beauty can point you to God, and who better to learn that than a child? Absolutely. They have such a natural sense of awe and wonder that I learn a lot, both, you know, in in church, our kids are, are capable of, at a very young age, of a greater sense of reverence than I think many of us give them credit for. Going to adoration with a small child, if you've adequately explained to them what's going on, is a beautiful and really inspiring experience. And I think it's a very similar kind of experience, taking young children into the natural world, having them experience, you know, 
you know, collecting seashells or crabs at the seashore or going on a hike and, um, you know, just climbing a mountain and feeling that sense of accomplishment. And it's just a wonderful way to introduce that sense of wonder, which, as you and Pope Benedict so eloquently point out, leads us to God. Mm -hmm. It leads us, that beauty will always lead us there. Now, I want to go back to this uh, vacation Bible school thing. So uh, you say that your parish has an excellent vacation Bible school program. Some parishes do not. They may not have it at all, or they may just be really terrible programming. I know that was my experience as a kid. Um, And some parents might just see this as, you know, a week-long opportunity for some programmed babysitting. Is there a way that parents can sort of augment what their kids are getting at Vacation Bible School to sort of extend it throughout the summer? Sure. I mean, I encourage parents who are participating in any kind of Vacation Bible School program to be actively involved. Your kid's going to be sent home with crafts and activities and, and papers saying what they're doing each day, or maybe spend a day with them and kind of follow them around, which is what I tend to do, and see what they're, what they're being taught, what's being said. Um, so in that way, you can very naturally, if there was anything that was incorrect passed on or anything that was incomplete, you can, you can fix that, you know, mm-hmm. talk with your child more about it or look things up on the way home. I hear what you're saying about some um, less than excellent programs. I was in some as a kid, and yet I still benefited from them. You know, yeah. back then Catholic churches weren't really offering VBS programs, so my parents uh, signed us up at this um, a, a Protestant church that was nearby. I think it was a Baptist church, and I remember coming home and telling my mom that our teacher had taught us about these horrible people, and I was so scandalized who worship statues. And mm-hmm. <laughs> my mom was like. Okay, <laughs> I think tomorrow I'm going to go with you to BBS. But it was, uh, and despite that, they were wonderful people, really generous, open, loving people. And I, I learned a lot there, especially in that they made us memorize scripture passages, which mm-hmm. was something I hadn't previously experienced and is a wonderful thing for a kid to experience. Oh, sure. And I don't want to just throw all vacation Bible schools under the bus here, but it is true that a lot of Catholic parishes end up using. Protestant vacation Bible school curriculum, which may end up being a problem at some point. But I'm wondering, just uh, I'm sorry, I might be putting you on the spot here, but do you know of any good Catholic resources for vacation Bible school that parents might be able to uh, recommend to their parishes? Yeah, for sure. Our Sunday Visitor has a great program, and um, there are a number of different companies, if you just Google, you know, Catholic and VBS, that will come up. And, you know, just thoroughly do your research. You know, also Holy Heroes um, has Mm -hmm. a good program that you can even do in your own backyard. It's very, very, you know, easy to begin and not too complicated. You can adjust it to meet your needs. You can do it with your own kids or with a few kids from the neighborhood or your parish. There, There are lots of different and flexible programs out there, and you can't go wrong, honestly. If, if parents are involved in their children's catechesis in that way. Because you can take out the stuff you don't like, you can add in what you think ought to be there, you can supplement the program in a thousand different ways, make it your own, and really just explore you know, Scripture and the teachings of the Church, learn about the sacraments, learn about the saints, together with your kids during the summertime. There's, it's really a great opportunity to do that. Danielle, thank you so much. As always, if listeners want to connect with you, where can they go? They can go to catholicmom.com. We'd love to have you join our community or daniellebean.com to listen to the podcast and find out more about the You're Worth It retreat. All right, Danielle, always appreciate your thoughts on these matters. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. All right, that'll do it for this special summertime edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. 
For Matt Swam and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.